Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and I'm here with my fellow host, Vincent M. Wales. And today, Vincent and I will be talking to Gretchen L. Ramsey, who is the Director of Patient Experience at Geisinger Holy Spirit in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. In this capacity, as she says, she teaches people how to be nice to one another. Gretchen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Gabe. I am so excited to be here. And hi, Vince. Hi there. I'm very intrigued by this teaches people how to be nice to one another, because I think that's a big failing in our society as a whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, I had to develop an elevator speech because director of patient experience sounds a lot like the director of hospitality. In a lot of ways, it is very much the same, but in other aspects, it's much different. Um, It is an opportunity to teach and train and to coach physicians and frontline staff how to recognize their own behaviors, but then also recognize the behavior of a patient or a family member who just may not be having the best day and how to interact with them in a, with a positive outcome as the ultimate goal. I think that it's very interesting speaking just as patient versus medical staff, because those are two very, very different experiences. One person, the patient is, is, you know, sick and scared and out of their element. And the other person, the medical staff is at work. This is their normal. So if there was ever going to be like a misunderstanding, I think that that is just the perfect recipe for that to happen. Has that been your experience? Is that what you're, you're kind of working to solve? It, it is, Gabe, and I appreciate that uh, astute observation, particularly because not only is there just one sick person, but there are multiple sick people coming in one after the other after the other, or it's a dad or a mom bringing in a sick child with maybe multiple kids. So it's not even a situation where you have a one at a time and, okay, now I'm done and I can move to the next one. You might have a line of three or four people that you, we have our frontline, um, what we call our patient access reps, checking people in, and they're the front face of the organization. And so if they are not educated and trained properly on how to negotiate those interactions, then oftentimes what we see is the rest of the visit is what we call sort of managed down. So before they even get back into that room, uh, that first impression that they've had, if it has not been a positive one, will really impact the overall interaction that they have uh, with his or her physician. I think one of the most common areas where this is going to be the case is in the emergency room when the doctors there are not necessarily trained in how to deal with psychiatric patients. And I know that several years ago, the Hospital Corporation of America collaborated with NAMI and they put together a training video called Competent Caring When Mental Illness Becomes a Traumatic Event. Because a lot of the people who get into an emergency room when they're having a psychotic episode or something, they're you can't treat them the same way that you would a normal patient. It just won't work very well. Right. So it was a really, really good video that they did and showed how easy it is to do things wrong with a psych patient. Vince, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, specifically at Geisinger Holy Spirit, um, we recognize that too. And so we picked up that same cue and very astutely so our hospital administrative team decided to, in fact, build congruent to the reception area of the emergency department, a completely 
separate intake area for those patients coming in the front door that presented in crisis, whether it was voluntary or involuntary. Because what we were seeing is, so, you know, I have two humans that I've created and hopefully doing a relatively decent job, <laughs> uh, one's 15 and one's 10 and a half. But when I would take either one of them in, oftentimes, you know, it'd be late at night, they're not feeling well, but you're watching a person who is in mental crisis also walk in. And so in addition to trying to help your child um, or your loved one feel a little bit better and try to comfort them, you also had somebody that was sitting right beside them that was in mental health crisis. So what we did is we built a separate intake area for those patients, and we built it with the idea of being a bit more compassionate, a bit more um, inquisitive about what level they may be presenting at. And then we trained our really fantastic emergency department staff to be able to handle that and to really be empathetic to both the patient uh, and the family members of the patient who may or may not be with them at that time. I really like what you said there about how you've got a person in crisis and they're impacting the people who aren't in crisis. And the example that you used is, you know, you with your tiny human right. uh, in the emergency room. And because you felt uncomfortable and you felt uncomfortable and therefore you were worried about your child. And what we've seen in psychiatric care is that that burden almost always falls on the person who's there for psychiatric care, you know, why don't you calm down? Why don't you, you know, you're, you're scaring people, stop. You know, we hear this time and time again, and it, it just becomes this feedback loop. You're in the emergency room because you can't calm down because you're presumably not in your right mind, you're in crisis. And then the people are yelling at you that you're making people nervous or they're afraid of violence and you need to control your behavior. You're in the emergency room because you can't control your behavior. Uh, and everybody thinks that the reasonable thing, it, it, it falls apart really quick because of everybody's basic misunderstanding of what mental health crisis looks like. So now the person who's sick has two problems. The problem they showed up at the emergency room for and this problem of trying to make people comfortable while they're sick. And it's it sounds like your hospital is working to prevent that and educate people so that at the end of the day the psychiatric patient has a much better chance of having a better outcome. Is, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's really our main goal. And, and as I'm probably sure you won't be surprised to know, the psychiatric inpatient uh, units uh, in local hospitals, they are at capacity. Um, oh, and, so, oh, and they lose money hand over fist. Right. Not only are they filled up, but they're, they're not even loss leaders. I, yeah. I mean, I've heard somebody say, that, well, it's a loss leader. No, it's not. The psychiatric patient doesn't come in to buy the pop and then leave with potato chips. It, it's just yeah. loss all the way around. And this makes people upset. It does. Uh, so that's an, and you have to find ways all around this. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, what will happen is, and, and recently um, I was actually uh, walking out to my car, which I walk in front of the emergency department every day to do, and just happened to be leaving, and it was a um, beautiful fall day, and there was a family that was standing there, and all of a sudden, I just saw this young woman sort of drop, and she started to hug on to one of the concrete barriers that we have in front of the emergency department, and she just wasn't going to get up, and, you know, long story short, she uh, worked in a nursing home and had never taken a vacation, uh, hadn't taken a vacation in six years. Oh my God. And very young woman, very motivated, as her mom and dad would say, but as her mom and dad were standing there, they had brought her in because she was just so exhausted and just so immediately evident that they were exhausted and she was exhausted. And it turned into a bit of an incident, um, multiple people there. And as soon as the police are showing up, you can see that she's agitated, but our staff, 
uh, at Guiding Our Holy Spirit, both in the emergency department and in the behavioral health crisis department, just came out and surrounded her. And it was a scary thing, but it was also a very beautiful thing to watch, particularly as the director of patient experience, to watch staff be able to engage with a patient who is so deeply in crisis. And it's just physically at the brink, you know, of physical exhaustion and cannot and is not capable of making proper decisions, but just to wrap around that patient, that's just something that, you know, when we talk about what motivates me to come back to work tomorrow, that's the thing. And I think about that quite a bit and actually have followed up with that family and that young woman is doing very, very well. But I think at the moment of watching that, her family was watching that too. So, and they weren't in, even though they were in crisis, they're going to remember that compassionate care um, that our team provided at Geisinger Holy Spirit. And I think, again, that's really what motivates me to come back every day. That's wonderful. Thank you. So how does the work itself affect you? This kind of work has to be difficult on the, uh, the patient experience professional too, right? It is. Because you're in charge of everybody. You get the complaints from both sides. <laughs> right. So I often say we're a Catholic hospital, and uh, I keep telling people, you know, wine is the blood of Christ. It's in the Bible, people. Um, if we could just have some dispensaries around the hospital, I think it would really help everybody just all the way around. Um, but in addition to a good glass of the blood of Christ when I get home, one of the things that really strikes me in my everyday work is, you know, when we're looking at people, the first question I have for them now is, where are they on their Maslow, you know, hierarchy of needs? You know, when we think of those physiological needs of food, water, and rest, that's really where I sort of, I come back to my own pyramid because I've realized that I can't stay up till 11.30 or 12 o'clock either on social media or uh, watch my favorite baseball game until, you know, that later at night. I really need really good rest because that mental recharge that I think we all need. And then really what I started to do in the morning, quite frankly, gentlemen, is I feel like since the moment my eyes open up, people are asking me questions. So my, those tiny humans, they're, they're constantly asking me something or my husband, uh, who is fantastic, is constantly asking me something. But I realized that that's a trigger because I'm constantly solving problems. And so I need about an hour before I really get into my day. So I've, I've really started to take up of getting up uh, about an hour before I really need to get ready and just to do some silent reflection, to do some devotion reading, uh, and just to reflect on the day before and the current day ahead, just to get a mental um, checklist prepared so that I can be more successful. And I've, I've seen a great amount of success with that maybe a little bit more than two or three glasses of the blood of Christ. So <laughs> thanks for asking. We're going to step away to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. Welcome back, everyone. We're here talking with Gretchen Ramsey about how to improve the patient experience. I like that you brought up Maslow's hierarchy of need. And for those who don't know, just a a real quick uh, synopsis of that is it's this idea that people need more than one thing in order to be well. Specifically in, in, you know, psychology or mental health circles, it's all fine and well to have somebody have, you know, the correct medications or to have somebody be able to see a psychiatrist or a medical doctor 
uh, and get the care that they need psychiatrically. But of course, if they don't have food or they're homeless or they don't feel safe, the, the medical care is only going to go so far. And uh, that that's a really bad explanation. You should probably Google it. But in general, it, it's just explaining that people need more than one thing. And one of the things that you've described is one of the things that people really, really need that we're really poor at giving ourselves is self-care. Mm -hmm. Because we think that self-care is actually pronounced selfish care. Uh, yeah. If you're worried about yourself, you're therefore not worried about your spouse, your tiny humans, your friends, your job, and therefore you're, you're lazy. Uh, but of course, we've learned that if you don't take care of yourself... You don't have the you know internal fortitude to help others, so you tend to help them more poorly. Now, am I explaining that correctly? Am I? No, Gabe. I think you you really um, you know you uncovered there something that you know, it's not only can you not function properly, you can't again negotiate those situations. You know, coming back to that idea of how many people are in front of you, um, you can't take care of yourself. There's no way. There's no way that you're gonna be able to really give patients the, the vibrant experience that makes them feel like we are glad that they are here and it's a privilege to be able to take care of them. One of the things that I really started to hone in on is when I am working with staff, it's a lot of behavior modification. So the first step of it is really just to educate them on the survey instrument that we use to give to the patients. And I always say it's an open book test. So we're giving you the test and I'm going to help you study. I'm going to give you the answers. But what happens is oftentimes you realize that somebody's pyramid, the staff person, you know, we think so oftentimes maybe it's the patient who's coming in the door that may not have clothing and food and shelter. What I quickly realized, quickly realized uh, as I worked the first few months on in this capacity is it's not just the patient. It's our staff. It's really our staff. I had a situation not that long ago where I was working in one of our family medicine clinics and somebody pulled me aside and said, you know, I think so-and-so may have gotten evicted. And I said, what? And there was evidence that perhaps the staff person was living inside the clinic with her two tiny humans. Oh, and wow, wow. so it immediately snapped something in my brain to think, here I am coaching this staff person. She had a tendency to be very quick with the patients. She would hang up if the patients, she and the patients were disagreeing. And then all of a sudden, I thought to myself, it is no wonder if she is worried about food insecurity, shelter, and where are we on that Maslow pyramid? So that's my new approach, interestingly enough, to coaching and training and educating staff, regardless of whether they are maybe an entry-level patient experience representative or if they are a physician. Because a lot of times then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, a physician who may be very, very stable at the bottom of that pyramid with their physiological needs being met, now may be in the center of that pyramid um, where there may be some esteem issues, or maybe they are striving to feel loved and connected in community with one another in some way. And that's a barrier oftentimes too to a patient experience because if, if they're too friendly, then we know what can happen and patients can get the wrong idea. And right. if they're connected, then I always say, you know, the patients, we got to unlock that empathy box. So it's a really interesting concept that I um, have been very focused in on. And it has, I think, helped me become a stronger professional in terms of let's figure out where they are and then we can figure out how to coach, educate, and train them. I just want to mention real quick, too, that 
this sort of uh, thing does not apply just to professionals. If you are an in-home caregiver for a loved one, for example, you also have to take care of your own needs before you can effectively maintain your relationship with them. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, so what I would like to know is what's the most challenging part for you of this job? I think it's figuring out where they are. I think it's figuring out where the where the individual or the staff member is on that pyramid. So, you know, I could be talking to a physician who is, has 20 plus years of education and try to dissect and figure out, okay, how can I help him or her the best? Because usually when they see me showing up, they know that there is something amiss. Um, but right now, I think, Vince, the most challenging part of my job is just trying to figure out the best way to give staff um, and the best techniques for de-escalation of sometimes very vitriolic patients. And we could be talking about a staff person who just graduated from high school, or you know, we could be talking about maybe it's a medical assistant who has had um, 18 months uh, of post-secondary education, but how do we safely and effectively train them to de-escalate patients when you both know, oftentimes it takes years and years and years of education to be able to do that properly. Uh, And the people who do have the privilege to work with our, our mental health patients and our crisis patients, they've gone to school for a very long time. So how do I condense that training right now in today's society and give that to the frontline staff. I think that's one of the most challenging things that I'm currently faced with. One of the things when you're sort of describing your job and like the actual like nuts and bolts of your job, it sort of reminds me of human resources. Like they're just trying to get management and employees to get along and to make sure that everybody follows the rules and that there's no laws broken. Is your job kind of human resources-y? I mean, because I think a lot of people understand the role of human resources and, you know, maybe a lot of our audience doesn't understand, you know, your role. I mean, teaching people how to be nice, that sounds all great and everything, but, but isn't that what human resources does? Teaches everybody to be nice? Can you kind of compare and contrast that a little? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think that the patient experience, the role of patient experience is, you know, it was born of the concept of the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services starting that survey instrument in early 2000s and then going public with that reporting of the findings from that first instrument in 2008. So I think the patient experience department, depending on what hospital or organization you're talking about, may reside in the human resource space. It also might reside in the clinical space, but a lot of times that is what it is. I have a very close relationship with our human resources team. Uh, They have great relationships with our staff, but a a lot of times I do have to collaborate with them just to say, you know, where are we with this person's performance um, improvement? And what is it that we can do to better, you know, help and, and train and educate them? You know, additionally, working with our organizational development group, and that's our group of trainers that offer systematic training throughout the year on different subjects. A lot of times I'm going in giving bits and pieces of those trainings, but I'm realizing the whole department could benefit and listen to and, and hear. So it is very human resourcey. You know, it is a lot of behavior modification and, and management. But you know, at the bottom line is my job is really just to make sure that the staff understand how their interactions are being perceived by the patient. We know that that may not always be the case. 
when our surveys go out, if they go, uh, if a patient is randomly selected to receive a survey by paper, it would be about two weeks after the interaction. So they'll get that paper survey in the mail. But if they are randomly selected to get the electronic version, they'll get it within the first 24 to 48 hours. So you can imagine which one tends to be more favorable. The ones that come in via the internet are the ones that really tend to be a little bit more volatile gotcha. because the, the experience is fresh in their mind. The more favorable ones happen to be the paper ones because a lot of times when you're writing comments, you actually have to take a, a good old fashioned pen and you have to hand write those comments if you want to give somebody a compliment or if you want to really make a suggestion for improvement or you have something negative to say you have to write that out. So it's my job is sort of in the middle of all of those spaces. And I think that's just what makes that type of work interesting because it's not necessarily defined in one bucket um, or another, both clinical or human resource um, or organizational development. It kind of spans those chasms. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So Gretchen, where do you see this experience going? Do you see it evolving into bigger and better things? What's on the horizon? Thanks for asking me that, Vince. I, myself, I really think that it is really heading down more of a psychological um, path that right now, I think the, if you would look up a job description for a patient experience director, many of them would require a nursing degree. They're looking for that registered nurse or an RN because the idea is clinicians can train clinicians. I actually happen to have a non-clinical background, which our leadership team at Geisinger Holy Spirit thought was a good fit because now I have the lens of a patient. I really see this profession going from a place where they require, you know, in many cases where they do require an RN, I can see it evolving to where they would actually require a degree in psychology because it truly is at the end of the day about getting people to change that behavior um, and break that cycle into something from a negative to a positive. I think in a recent podcast, I think you guys interviewed Dr. Judd Brewster, and I heard him call addiction, uh, how did he say that? I think he described it um, as the continued use despite um, adverse consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. Dave, yes. you know, when you ask about, you know, the human resource space, I think that's one of the challenges is if person is treating a patient the same way and it's having a negative impact and we can't do anything to change that behavior, then that really just becomes, okay, I'm at the end of my rope and I'm not sure what's next. Oftentimes I find myself thinking, boy, if I had a background in psychology, perhaps this may be, uh, this would have been more beneficial. And to the point where I've even considered if I would ever go back to get a PhD, which I think then I'd need a lot of blood of Christ. Um, but I think you have to figure, you know, figure something out with those tiny humans that it would probably be a PhD in psychology because I really see that that's what I believe is going to be the future of the director of patient experience. That's wonderful. Gretchen, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate having you. And it it just shows you that we have a lot of work to do the fact that this is new. I imagine that medical staff has been complaining about patients and patients have been complaining about medical staff for decades. 
and, and this is a relatively new thing where we're, we're trying to bridge that gap and get everybody on the same page. I think what you're doing is admirable and wonderful, and I, I hope it spreads across the country and the world. Definitely. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for your great work, too, to get this topic out in, in a fun and easy easy to understand and digest. It's, it's great as a professional to have those resources on you know, on your 30-minute commute, it's just nice to listen to something else than uh, just talk radio. This is perfect. You know, if your commute ever goes to 35 minutes, you're going to be in trouble. But if it ever drops to 20, so, <laughs> yeah, just make sure you drive the same route and you'll be fine. Every time, yeah. All right. Thank you, Gretchen. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, just by visiting betterhelp.com slash Psych Central. See everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.